Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Um, Good morning, welcome, hello to everyone in the room, and also to those streaming in from online, Westside and Battersea, uh, it's brilliant to have everyone here this morning for the last of our Tough Questions um, series, uh, talks. It's felt like a really fast six weeks where we've been looking at a different tough question every week, trying to dig into uh, to what is behind the question, to what is being asked, and also what the Christian worldview might be able to say and unpack um, as a way of answering, uh, at least in part, some of these tough questions. If you're anything like me, um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, but also you'll know that this has not answered every possible aspect or facet of these questions. That just is not possible. So if you're in life groups, you've been diving a little bit more deeply into these. The life group leaders have a bunch of resources they can forward on to you um, to help you continue those journeys beyond just these six weeks. So that, that of course, is going to need uh, to happen to different degrees. And, uh, but today we also do have a, a triple 20 um, this evening, which will really help to unpack a few more uh, questions and opportunities to ask those. So do, do uh, join for tonight. It'll be brilliant. But without further ado, I want to introduce Alexander, um, who's going to come up. And uh, if you can just take the number down, you know the drill if you've been here at all in the last few weeks. At the end of Alexander's talk, we're going to do a live Q&A. We're going to have a panel. Steve, Alexander, and Shakira are going to step up to the plate and, uh, and respond to the live questions we have from across the different sites. So please take this number down and be texting in your questions throughout the talk, um, and we will answer them at the end. So, Alexander, I was going to do a big introduction about who you are, but that would probably, you wouldn't like that. No, you wouldn't like that. Okay, I'm going to leave that and let Alexander carry on. So let's welcome Alexander to, to give us talk. Morning, everyone. Mike, uh, thank you. I hope you will also be part of the Q&A session afterwards. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. This talk, as Mike said, is the last in our series of tough questions. The hope was to address some of the most challenging issues that might be a barrier to faith. The expectation was particularly to engage those outside of the church, those who might be struggling to believe that Jesus was for them. For me, these questions have been really relevant for us within the church, those who might have been coming to church for many decades. Today, I'm going to particularly draw on Amy or Ewing's talk from a few weeks ago, which asked, isn't Christianity violent and oppressive? Amy's focus was on the role of um, women, women in the church, women in Jesus's life. I think that the same question, isn't Christianity violent and oppressive, and the theological response to it can also apply to matters uh, with respect to race. The structure that I'll use is first, I'm going to ask you what you think about this topic. We're going to have an opportunity in a moment to anonymously answer some questions, which we'll be able to access through a QR code that will come up on the screen. If for whatever reason you don't want to or you can't, we can spend a few minutes spe speaking in twos and threes about this issue. I'll rehearse a little bit the broad conversations that we've been having about race as a church, which started 
when George Floyd was murdered. I'll spend a little bit of time considering whether Christianity is a white person's religion from a theological context and explore what it might mean for us as a church. And I'll finish with reflections on how we might have conversations about race as a church if it's something that we think matters to us. So before I get stuck in, the code will come up on the screen. I wanted to ask these questions because I don't really have a good sense as to whether these issues of race are really relevant for us as a church. I don't want to presume to set an agenda. I was interested to take stock together. There's a chance now, anonymously, to answer these few uh, questions. For those of you who can make it to the 2020-20 session this evening, there may be an opportunity to unpick some of those answers together. And I think for anyone who answers the questions, you'll see the results um, to the survey straight away. Yeah. As I said, you don't have to give your, your name. There's no way that um, you can be tracked down. Originally, I thought we could use a show of hands, but my wife said no one will put their hands up if you ask people to uh, explain why they've given the answers they have. They'd be silent. I hope that wouldn't have been the case, but I hope this makes it easier for us all to uh, get involved. For those of you who don't have the, the code, the questions are as follows. As Vineyard 61 Church, should we be having conversations about race with a chance to answer yes or no? How much time do you think we spend talking about race? Too much, just right, or too little? Since we started talking about race as Vineyard 61, have things changed? Yes, things have gotten better. Yes, things have gotten worse. Or no? And then a chance to respond. How are you feeling about this topic as we begin today's talk? I ask there to say whether you're white or a person of color as you respond. I'll give you a, a few minutes for those of you who want to respond uh, to do so. If you want to speak to the person uh, next to you about it, there's also a chance to do that. I think that we'll have some uh, background music, I've heard, um, as we reflect. Um, and this is an opportunity for everyone at each side to participate. Uh, so whether you're um, in Balham or elsewhere, please um, take a moment um, to respond. Thank you, everyone who responded and uh, for making time to, to reflect on these issues. And for this to be an active participation, my hope is that I'm not just speaking um, at you, but rather there's an opportunity for us to speak to each other. My wife and I, uh, my wife's Hannah, uh, we first attended this church in April of 2016. I think it was the fourth or the fifth uh, service. We were inspired by Stephen Viv's vision We'd read about the church online. Our sense we got before we came was that this is a church that would have a posture of going out into Balham and spreading love. That we'd be an active church, that we'd reach out to people far beyond the walls of the church. And it was already happening through the job club and in many other ways. We wondered, what does it look like to put our faith into practice? How do we live out that love that Jesus models for us again and again and again in the Gospels? And um, we, we felt that Stephen Viv would help us on that journey. 
After that first service, everyone was invited back to Stephen Viv's house for lunch. There weren't a huge number of us in the service. I think most of us came. There were probably around a dozen people around your table for lunch. As I looked around the table, I thought, maybe this is what heaven will be like. Because I saw young and old people, people who were obviously wealthy and those who weren't, people of different races, some people who are obviously struggling, uh, uh, some uh, whose struggles were on the surface, others whose struggles were a little bit hidden. I think that day we fell in love with uh, what Stephen Viv uh, stood for uh, and with the possibility of being a part of a community where everyone could be embraced, where everyone would feel at home. Us, this was fundamental to our understanding of what Christianity is, of what it means to belong in a church. If we look in the Bible again and again and again, I read it and understand that everyone is welcomed in, that everyone gets to play, as Vineyard says. And also that the awesome's in the awkward, as I heard Steve say again and again and again. And it's in that posture that I approach this conversation today, because it's not easy to have these conversations, uh, I find. We look at Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. First John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You, dear children, are from God. I don't read that with any qualification. It is dear children from such and such a background or culture or life experience. I think it's each one of us. Steve, I know that your heart was in many ways formed by working with people in prison who come from the widest variety of backgrounds and who've had the widest variety of life experiences, but that Jesus is there for each of them and that God loves each of them. Lots has changed since that first service and lunch. Our family has grown. We came here with one child. We now have four. We've moved a little bit away from our inner London. We've weathered COVID together, exploring how we become proximate to each other online. We've had two new sites uh, established. We started having conversations about race after George Floyd's death. We've had a number of them over the last couple of years, online, in services, and at standalone events. For me, I've always said, and I say it again, when we're having such conversations, it's really good to start with why. Why are we talking about this? Why does it matter to us? And for me, it always has to start with the leaders, as Steve, Viv, and I have often discussed. I think there are at least three reasons for having conversations like we're having this morning and like we'll have this evening at the 2020-20 session. One is external expectation or pressure. We can look out at the society around us and we can see that conversations are taking place and say, well, maybe we should be part of them too. And it felt to me like after George Floyd died and this Black Lives Matter movement rose up, that that pressure triggered conversations in all sorts of different places, but many of them fizzled out quite fast. There can be internal pressure within a community, a business, a school, a university, a church. I think that can come from people of any uh, background. It says, these things matter to us. We think that we need to engage around them. 
I think that there's also a possibility that it comes from the leaders, those who set the direction, the strategy, who allocate the resources. I think this is key to us. I hope that it's with that uh, posture that we can continue conversations like the one that we're having today. Not being forced to from outside, not a, a few people agitating from within, but having a sense of conviction uh, around the church that this is a, a topic that matters to us all. I want to talk a little bit about how I came to give this talk and what it means to, to give it. Because others who've spoken in this series have multiple degrees. They've written books, apologetics books, books about theology. Uh, they spent years uh, studying the matters that they're speaking on. I think my qualification for this talk is that I'm a bit brown. <laughs> I can't speak on anyone else's behalf. I can share my experiences. I can speak to you as a man who's got multiple degrees in law, not in theology, who has one white parent and one partly black parent. I work in East Africa, where I'm routinely considered to be white, but in the UK, I'm typically considered to be black because my dad is partly black. I wonder if my son with blonde hair and blue eyes will also be black because his dad is partly black. Mike approached me to give this talk my perspective is as a mixed-race man born and raised in London. Mike's as a white South African man living in the UK. We've had a really extensive back and forth ahead of it. Tell us, what does this talk mean for the church? What does this topic mean for this church? Is it one of the urgent topics that we're reflecting on as a community? Do we sense that Christianity is a white person's religion, whether we're white or not? I said to Mike, maybe you'd be better placed to, to give it to me, but we agreed that we would work through these issues um, together in a spirit of solidarity, in a spirit of fraternity, in a spirit of um, brotherhood, which I hope is the posture that we can all adopt as we journey together. Mike uh, reflected that in uh, South Africa and West Africa, it seemed often to be the case for black people that there was a question, well, Christianity isn't for us. It's a white person's religion. I said that totally didn't resonate with my experience, and I've never met um, someone who's white or not in London who said that to me. We agreed that it was a subject to explore in the broader context uh, of race. We, we spent some time working out whether this topic was about what was going on in the church today or about looking to the early church and who was involved in that. I think this posture of apologetics, explaining, defending, sometimes justifying Christian beliefs can draw a huge amount from how the church started, from those first Christians who were most proximate in time to Jesus' life. But I think that people also look at the church as it is today. People from outside look in, and I think that they draw some conclusions about what it means to be a Christian and about Jesus from looking at us so I want to briefly look at historical and more con uh, current uh, context. I'm not an expert on these issues. I've really tried to educate myself ahead of uh, giving this talk. I spent a lot of time um, researching and reading and talking to people. As I uh, was talking about this with my wife last night, she said, I wonder how many people said no to giving this talk before you said yes. <laughs> Mike, I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you for names. <laughs> 
Shakira, I'm grateful that you agreed to be part of the question and answer session uh, afterwards. My dad's currently at Trinity Hospice in Clapham. They say that for those who are dying, a sign that death may be near is a sense of impending doom. As I was getting ready to speak this morning, I guess that's the best way to describe <laughs> how I was feeling. Sometimes it feels like I'm wheeled out every six months or year to, to trigger a conversation, perhaps to provoke. Almost every time I speak, I wonder, will I be invited to do so again? And I feel that keenly today because I know that talking about these matters can provoke strong reactions. It can be really easy to cause offense. I think the ability to talk with courage is like a muscle. We need to do it often in order to develop it and to get better at doing it. I hope that today might create possibilities for new conversations, new connections, new understanding. Can we uh, turn to our first slide, please? I wanted to start with this picture. I found it on the Equal Justice Initiative website, taken from a Ku Klux Klan revival in the 1920s in, in Alabama. For me, the, the juxtaposition of Jesus saves and the Klan outfit was startling. It gave me food for thought. I wondered in that church who they thought Jesus saves. Sometimes these conversations are uncomfortable and their scope for getting it wrong. But I don't think that means that we shouldn't have them at all. I think it's also really good to, to face up to our shared past, to spend time reflecting on where we've come from so we can prepare for where we're going. I recommend the Equal Justice Initiative uh, as a resource. It's an American organization. It spends a lot of time considering matters um, of race and how it shaped society today. They've informed my perspective. Their um, materials are challenging. They explore the topic of um, Christianity and uh, racism and segregation. As I was reading their materials, I reflected on the bombing in Alabama in 1963 of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where four children in Sunday school were killed by the Ku Klux Klan. The idea of being in church together as black and white and people of different colors can be deeply uncomfortable for some. I wondered with Mike, is this a question that people of color are asking? Or is this a question that over many years, some white people have come to believe? We spent time exploring uh, the meaning uh, of an apologetic church and an apologetic approach. Of where we can draw our ideas from as we enter into these conversations uh, together. I think we can start with where we are. Steve and Viv have acknowledged that there's been a change in our church over the past months. I don't know if you've noticed it, but lots of people of color who used to be here have gone. I don't know where. I don't know uh, why. I don't know if we were in relationship with each other and we've noticed that change. But it was hearing you reflect uh, on that, which made me think this is something that maybe is worth exploring 
together. Thinking about the theological perspective on this uh, question, I was slightly puzzled, I guess. It seemed to me obvious that Christianity wasn't just for white people, because I didn't consider Jesus to be white. I'm not sure if it's okay to, to say that. I don't know, maybe it's not true, because we've never seen a picture uh, of him. We've never seen a photograph. Apparently, Jesus is the most painted person in history. If we can have the slides, please. I guess when we look at paintings of Jesus, you, we know who that is, right? Can we see the next one? Looks familiar. The next? It's not just paintings, it's also television and film. The next, please. About right? The next? The next? Bit of a disconnect. So I thought it was interesting to try and understand more about what Jesus may have looked like. When Amy was talking about the role of women in the church, she explored, and there were questions asked afterwards about the fact that Jesus came to earth as a man. What was the significance of that? I wonder, is there any significance in how we portray Jesus in the images that we, we paint or we show in films or we show our children in our kids' church films? The next image, please. The, uh, as I did research, I came across a BBC documentary um, which had tried to create an accurate image of what Jesus may have looked like as a, a Galilean man of that time. It said, in 2001, forensic anthropologist Richard Neve created a model of a Galilean man for a BBC documentary called Son of God, working on the basis of an actual skull found in the region. He didn't claim it was Jesus' face. It was simply meant to prompt people to consider Jesus being a man of his time and place. Since we're never told that he looked distinctive, I wonder if that's something of what Jesus may have looked like. Would he have been invited into the church that we saw holding the revival, saying Jesus saves? For me, my, my personal um, experience and conviction has time and again been that Jesus died for each one of us. I've worked in prison all of my uh, life with people who've committed serious um, crimes as well as those who are innocently um, imprisoned. There again and again and again, I've seen life-changing encounters with Jesus. I've sometimes had those moments myself when I feel deeply, feel deeply seen and known as a son of God. Psalm 139 has always been a very powerful one for me. I've spoken on it here once or twice before. Line 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And David was speaking about himself, but I understand that to be intended for each one of us, not just for white people, that each of us is created by God in God's image, is known by God. That psalm talks about if we're in the depths of hell or in heaven, he's there with us. If that's how God knows us, can we be known in the same way in the church? Can we journey together in the same way in the church, that regardless of who we are or where we come from, we're accepted, we're loved, we're seen, we're heard?
I've spoken here before about Jesus and his interactions with the Samaritans, including in John 4, where Jesus receives water from the Samaritan woman at the well. They weren't of the same religious or cultural background. The woman herself was shocked that Jesus could request water from her. She asked, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The passage goes on to say, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. In the story of the Good Samaritan, where the religious leaders, the Jewish priests and the Levite, refuse to help the person in need, but the Samaritan, from a different and ostracized group, steps in to show Christ-like mercy to the one who has broken on the, mo on the road. To me, these interactions point towards Jesus embracing people of all cultures. I've spoken about uh, Amy, who spoke earlier in this series on Isn't Christianity Violent and Oppressive? I wanted to recap briefly on what she said, and I'd love to point you back um, to her talk if you didn't have a chance to hear it, because for me, the theology which she so eloquently explained and which she is very well placed to do so uh, underpins the point I'm trying to make this morning. She spoke about Jesus' radically countercultural treatment of women and other marginalized groups. She spoke about the fact that Christianity gave women equal humanity with men. I think it also gives us equal humanity regardless of whether we're white or black or brown. She referenced Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3.28, which says, No Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. If we believe that, what does that mean for us as a church? What does it mean for how we share life? Living in one of the most diverse cities, in the world. We look out in the schools near, near here, in the workplaces, we see people from the widest variety of backgrounds. How do we embrace that? He said, that vision changed the ancient world. Patriarchy, oppression, sexism aren't a logical outworking of the New Testament. They're not found in the actions or priorities of Jesus Christ. That's why faithful Christians in every generation have resisted them. Terrible things have been done in the name of institutional Christianity. These are not outworkings of Christ. And perhaps that was what was happening in that first picture, as those fellows had that revival. Maybe afterwards they were going out to burn crosses and to lynch some black people. But regardless of the things uh, which have been done, which have caused pain, in the name of Christianity, the people who've been killed in that name, because they've been done by humans and because each of us is flawed, each of us is sinful, each of us screws up. That's not the nature of God. He said, we shouldn't be surprised to be disappointed by the church. The church recruits from the human race. We may have been uh, disappointed by the church, but not by Christ. His promise, coming to know him, is the key. Real transformation of the human heart is possible when it comes from him. People may fail, but Jesus does not fail. He's available to every one of us. And she spoke about the possibility of men creating opportunities for women. I wonder, what does it look like for white people to create opportunities for people of color? What does it look like here for us? Turning now to the question of, is Christianity a white person's uh, religion? 
is that our understanding as Vineyard 61. I think if we look at the leadership of the Vineyard Church in the UK, or the Anglican Church, or the Catholic Church, maybe we could be forgiven for thinking that, whether we're part of the church or outside of it, because we see an almost total absence of people of color. In London, according to the London Church Census data, 48% of churchgoers are black. It doesn't say black and other people of color, but it says 48% of churchgoers are black. It seems that in Britain, or in London at least, black people are proportionally more likely to go to church than white people. We've heard over the last couple of years since George Floyd died from many of us here who are black and brown about our experiences, about our uh, challenges inside church and outside of church. And I don't plan to rehearse them today. I think some of us are a little tired of sharing them. It can be painful to share them. And sometimes if we share and share and we don't see change, it can make us uh, a little brokenhearted. And I think sometimes if uh, white people hear again and again and again about our struggles or our difficulties or the things which have been tough, it can um, also create resistance. I think what we need is not to talk at each other, but it's to talk to each other. Last week, Mike acknowledged that we have a large number of South Africans joining our church. I don't know if it's okay to recognize it, and that they seem to be mostly white South Africans. We seem to have a disproportionate number of people from South Africa and America, from societies which have a deep history of racial prejudice, of racial intolerance. Not to say that we don't in Britain, as I was reflecting and reading about the Church of England and how people like my dad, who came here in 1960 from Jamaica, who had faithfully attended Anglican churches or Catholic churches, arrived in London, they're told you're not welcome here because of your skin color. So it's not about pointing the finger um, at, at others. I think that all of us have an opportunity to reflect and to consider responsibility. But I think about us and our makeup. For those of us who come from societies which very recently have had segregated churches, where a black person who tried to enter church maybe would be arrested or worse. Does that mean that we're uniquely well-equipped as a church to do work around racial reconciliation? Have we done that work? Are we ready to listen to each other and encounter each other in new ways or, or not? I'm not sure. And I'd love to hear someone who's white talking about this topic. I think either way, it's fine. Because I think that our invitation is to show up to each other again and again in love. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we hurt each other. Sometimes we let each other down. But in the same way that God is there for us as we make mistakes, as we screw up, as we fail, wonder how we can journey with each other in that way. I wonder as we're building this church together, I, I think about how far we've come as we try to serve together, to love together within the church and outside. What is welcomed? What must be left behind? I was struck by our early celebrations of Thanksgiving here, and I loved it. We had delicious food. Um, I was introduced to pumpkin pie. I love it. But I wonder, could we celebrate carnival uh, as well? Much of our music and culture is borrowed from the evangelical church from America. Do we ask, what are we consuming, and where is it coming from? Who else could we draw on? What other parts of the church can equip us for our service, for our journey?
have touched on the fact that we can't look to the future without facing the past, about the fact that colonial attitudes in Britain, in America, in South Africa, elsewhere, around the idea that Christianity could civilize people of color were prevalent. Justin Welby, as Archbishop of Canterbury said, there's no doubt when we look at our own church that we're still deeply institutionally racist. He said this a couple of years ago. Let's just be clear about that. The Church of England has a dark history where slavery is concerned that we need to confront. Racial injustice inside the church and outside is an issue that exists to this day. We have embarked on the process to uncover and confront this dark past with the aim of restoration, repair, and promoting a better future for us all. He goes on to quote James Baldwin, the African-American writer, who said, not all that is faced can be changed, but nothing can change until it's faced. What, if anything, are we being invited to face as Vineyard 61? As I uh, wrap up, as I said, I spent many hours trying to prepare myself ahead of today. For me, it was important to hear a white British church leader's perspective to add to my own and those of some of the people of color from this church that we've heard from on this subject. I learned a lot from the rector of Saint Church in Hackney, a community of five churches in East London. It was instructive and informative for me to listen to an Instagram sermon by Al Gordon, their rector, which he posted in the days immediately following George Floyd's murder. It's called Saint Church, the chaps Al Gordon. Uh, it's on Instagram, I recommend listening to it. His posture was that racial justice is a moral issue, and as with all moral issues, you can't be impartial. He said that if you're not being part of the solution, you're being part of the problem. He said if you're si silent or passive on issues of moral justice, you're giving permission for moral injustice, a concept explored by the likes of Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He went on to say, I need to own this conversation personally. We're not only diverse as a church by default, we're diverse by intention. He said, my perspective as a white man is important. It doesn't negate my duty to engage. The color of my skin gives me an important voice. He states that the posture of his church is to love each other into a newer reality. I think that we can learn from him. As we perhaps continue this conversation, I hope that we can bear the following in mind. For me, it's good to talk, but talk alone doesn't change things. In fact, too much talking with too little action can make things worse. Ultimately, we have to decide whether this is an issue that's relevant for us, because in many ways we're growing, and we're flourishing as a church disproportionately made up of affluent young white people. We could say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The demographics may not reflect those of the surrounding two or three or five mile radius. Does it matter? And it's not on the people of color to do the work. There's a saying that the minority spends much more time studying the majority, the majority has to spend no time studying the minority. I'm sure it could be said for women as well, who have survived and thrived in male-dominated environments. I think a question for us could be, are white people willing to learn, to change, to sacrifice anything to accommodate people of color?
I think these choices play out with the emphasis that we place on things like pastries or coffee or how we worship or what we wear who our staff are and who gets to serve and who gets to speak. The good news is that the good news offers us a guide. I think we can look to the early church as an example of unity. I think we can look to Jesus' life again and again for an example of embracing those of different creeds and nationalities. We can look to Paul's letters, to the Roman church, the diversity there. It wasn't monocultural. I believe that we're invited as people who follow Jesus to always move towards the minority, to always move towards the outcasts, to always move towards the margin. Stephen, that's what I saw you doing, intentionally going towards those that others didn't want to be near, intentionally welcoming in those who wouldn't belong elsewhere. Next weekend, I was invited to a Jubilee street party in Oxford. They were hoping to have the biggest Jubilee street party in the country and for it to be featured in the Guinness Book of Records with 550 tables side by side. Maybe that's how we can grow with 550 tables like that first table that Hannah and I and our son Frederick sat around back in 2016 where everyone gets to play, where everyone is welcomed regardless of where they come from, regardless of where they look like, regardless of what they've done or had done to them. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Alexander. Um, do you want to come to the side of me? Um, side? That side. So, that, so what we're going to do is the three of them are going to line up on that side so those streaming in can see them as well as me. And uh, I'm going to put the questions to you uh, and feel free to answer them as little or as much as you want. I'm not going to kind of go person by person. I'll just put it to you and you go for it. So the first question is, how do we reconcile the church's history of racial oppression with the vision of Galatians 3, uh, 28 that you outlined of no slave, no free, no all of that? How could they have got moral justice so wrong for so long? That's the question. Just, to, just say the question again. How do we reconcile the church's history of racial oppression with the vision of Galatians 3.28 uh, that Alexander quoted? How could they have got moral justice so wrong for so long? The Galatian church? Or How could the church, the church. Has, in its history have got things so wrong? If the clear vision of Scripture is this equality between men and women and people of different backgrounds and ethnicities, how could the church have got that so wrong? I think uh, some of it is uh, where we are, have been unconscious about, where we've been not aware about. Um, I think locally now, things that over the last six years where we've been focused on, there's been, there have been certain uh, moral issues or injustices that, or just individual needs that because of the, the nature of the church we've, uh, we've obviously missed or there's a, a whole bunch of blind spots I think the vision of the church in Galatians that everyone is included and uh, everyone is involved. And I guess our, our, uh, the church's response is, and for us, for me as a church leader, is to, is to see where those uh, gaps are, where people, people haven't been 
welcomed or, like Alexander was saying, what are the reasons that uh, our black, black and people of colour have, have left the church? What, what, is, what are those reasons? So, for example, uh, one lady, she, um, her, her mum died and the expectation was that the pastor would go to her house and in our sort of stream is, or talk to your life group leader, go and let your life group leader know. I was unaware culturally that she expected me to go as, as the male pastor to go and visit her. And so that was just a, something I had no idea about in terms of culturally what, what, she, what she needed. Okay, so second question, how, how important is race, ethnicity, or nationality in our discipleship? Said another way, does our race matter to God? How important is our race, our background, nationality to God as we've learned to follow Jesus better? I think that's the heart of the question. Um. I think it's important in terms of when you're thinking about your mission, your purpose as, as a Christian and how you relate to other people. So I was thinking um, when Alexander was speaking about the actual question, you know, is Christianity a white person's religion? I definitely have, well, a whole range of family and friends who are either, are either not Christian because of that top, like that question and believing that basically it is, or have wrestled with that at some point in their journey. So I think if you're someone who believes that you want to go out and evangelize or, or connect with people, it's important to understand where that person's coming from and understand how um, understand your cultural identity, but also have an understanding of other people's. My sense is that if God did create each of us in his image, if he did knit us together in our mother's womb, we are as he intended us to be we look as he intended us to be. So I think the question is for us as a church, for us who want to serve, for us who lead a church, how do we meet people where God left them? If our job is to steward each other, if we have an opportunity to be the manifestation of Jesus uh, in each other's lives. St. Teresa of Villa says that Christ has no hands on earth but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. How we can see with Christ's eyes. Then how do we equip ourselves? Because sometimes we have blind spots. Sometimes we relate to people who look like us, with whom we have a shared language, a shared cultural understanding. And so I think there's an opportunity to ask, well, if I want to serve, if I want to show up as Jesus, if I want to show up as love to those around me, how do I equip myself? And uh, recognizing our own perspective, our own influences, how we've been uh, formed in church and outside, our own experiences around uh, race. I think that in, in doing so, in having those conversations, in doing that thinking, we're better placed to reach out in love to all people, to be bridges towards uh, all people. So I, I, I don't want to say too much. Um, Alexander did, did ask me to say something. And he alluded to the fact that 
I'm South African, and the history that we have in South Africa is a very, very complicated one. And over the last five, six, seven years in particular, these conversations have come to the fore in, in our generation, um, particularly on university campuses and other spaces, where we've had to wrestle with complicity in the history um, and the reality of that history not remaining as history, but being present even uh, today in our relationships and the way we speak to each other. And so for me, when I think about being a Christian and race as part of that reality, it's recognizing that every person has a story, has a reality that I can't assume is the same as mine, obviously, but that goes a long way to, learn, to, to taking the posture of learning about that particular person and their story and where they may be coming to a discussion about faith or God from, not from an apologetic point of view, but from a relational point of view. There's a, there's a 10% that I see, there's the 90% that I don't see. And if I'm assuming things about their story that are not true, I found that that is particularly uh, hurtful. So in terms of where race matters in this process, it's realizing that, yes, this person, even if they're in the church, may be a Christian, but the fact that they have a different skin color to me in this country means they have a story that is very different to my own, and there's a posture of learning and understanding for a relationship to be, to be formed and for discipleship and friendship to, to grow from that point. So that's just one nuance I wanted to add from my, my context. Final question uh, is, you, Alexander, you alluded to this, but maybe each of you can, can just give one uh, brief reflection what are helpful ways to be part of constructive conversations and change? So you've spoken about the why, and that is a question that needs to be answered. But given that the question answered is, is positive to that question of why, um, how do we um, get involved in, construction, in constructive conversations and change from this point? What does that look like potentially, practically? Um, I, I, I feel like uh, during COVID last year, I was out of action. I was just, I didn't see anyone. I stayed in, stayed in my bedroom. Um, I couldn't walk to the bathroom. Um, and even now, Abby, my daughter's here, even now, um, my, the conversations we were having is around close proximity and being around, around people. So, um, and even now, um, I don't really see a lot of people, and um, Abby's like, probably testify. And, and but just there is something on me to uh, the to take on what we've uh, what we began a couple of years ago uh, to uh, to continue to have those uh, conversations uh, with with people and to find out. So uh, I think there's some intentionality on, on our part. Uh, I love what Al Gordon was saying a couple of years ago, and just there's that um, uh, there's that intention of all that we're doing, not just publicly and privately, but from our uh, our govern governance down to who who gets to lead, who gets to speak, who who has those times. So there is some intentionality. I'm hopeful that we'll have more two-way conversations. I think if we look back over the last couple of years, it's usually been um, people of color speaking to the church about our um, experiences. Um, I'm not sure that that approach serves um, any, any of us alone, especially when it's speaking like this, which is one way. I think we have to learn how to have conversations with um, each other. 
and um, it's, it can be uncomfortable. Uh, and some of us, I guess, find it easier than others, but I think it probably gets tiresome hearing from uh, the likes of me um, around it. And I think each of us has a chance to contribute um, to this. I wonder, as a church, how we intentionally create the space to do that, to encounter each other, to listen to each other. I think sometimes we can hold back because we're not quite sure what to say or we're going to get it wrong, we're going to make someone else feel uncomfortable because of all sorts of different good um, intentions. But my real uh, hope is that we can commit collectively to doing that, that meaningful but hard work of finding ways to deeply encounter each other and learn from each other and be transformed by um, each other as we see Christ in um, each other. But it doesn't involve, as I see it, a conversation once a year or once every um, six months. And it doesn't involve um, speaking at each other, but it's rather speaking to and listening deeply and having the chance to um, respond and to hear much, 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 much more from white people as part of this um, conversation. Because I think the few of us here who aren't white, we're, I, don't, I can't speak for others, but I'm a bit tired. Um. For me, I think it's probably two things. One is actually probably more general, just relevant in life, and that's just working on your own biases. Like, we all have them, and it doesn't necessarily mean race. It's, you know, it could be class. It could be just an assumption that, you know, the pilot who's flying the plane's a man versus a woman. Um, I think it, it, you just grow as a person, don't you, if you're conscious of those, acknowledge that, and move on and move forward. Um, and then I think the other thing for me is probably working on empathy in so far as the moments for me where I felt more positive about change is when someone who I didn't expect reached out or you know somehow acknowledged something that I was going through. So I can give you an example. There was during, I mean, the George Floyd situation or murder was like devastating for me. And it actually wasn't necessarily just to do with George Floyd, but recognizing my own experience, that was the first time I'd actually properly done that. And I remember being in my work, like being at work, obviously working from home, and there was one specific person that reached out to me to be like, are you okay? And for me, that was really, really helpful because it just made me think, oh, I am seen and someone is acknowledging that this is affecting me. So I think when you do have that prompting, and, and God can prompt you, right, to recognize when people are hurting, I think when you tune into that, that's, that is progress. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Why don't you give these guys a round of applause? Huge thanks to uh, Alexander. Uh, and for Shakira and for, for Mike for uh, posing the questions there. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.